Hello, welcome to the Fantastic Fiction and KGB Reading Series. Fantastic Fiction is a monthly speculative fiction reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month, hosted by Ellen Datlow and me, Matthew Kressel. We spotlight well-known and up-and-coming science fiction, fantasy, and horror authors, and admission is always free. We publish a monthly podcast and video so people who can't attend the in-person event can still enjoy the readings. If you'd like to support the series, you can donate at kgbfantasticfiction.org slash support. Anyway, on to the show. Welcome to new, the new people. Um, if you've just discovered this reading series, I'm happy that you have. Um, it's KGB, Fantastic Fiction at KGB, has been running for 20 years, maybe? Maybe, no, more. more. Eh, more than 20 years. Yeah. Um, and Matt and I have been hosting it for about 10, 12, yeah. more. Yeah. I've been hosting it more than him, longer than him, but anyway. Um, we are now the, we are the second Wednesday of every month. And uh, entrance is always free, and we hope you will drink a lot and tip your bartender generously. She will keep you hydrated. Whether you drink alcohol or non-alcohol, please drink and uh, make everybody happy and make yourselves happy. And I don't know if I forgot anything. Anyway, oh, we did a kick. We did a um, GoFundMe in order to fund the next two years, three years, three years, three, three, and we got it. So we funded for the next three years. So thank you very much, any, everyone who donated. Anyway, our first reader tonight is Eileen Gunn. Eileen writes short stories. Her fiction has received the Nebula Award in the US and the Sense of Gender Award in Japan, and has been nominated to the Hugo, the Philip K. Dick Awards, the World Fantasy Award, and James Tiptree Awards. She will be reading from new work. Please welcome Eileen Gunn. all the cheers. I like the whistles. And, and I lied about the new work. Uh, <laughs> I read the, from new work at World Fantasy, but I thought you guys might actually want to hear something from this book, which is like a, it's a self-contained unit of, of, of joy. Okay, I hope joy. Um, also, I, I not only have books there, I have uh, coupons that you can use online to buy either this book, book or any of the other books on PM Press, and it's 25% off, so it's actually better to buy the, to just grab a coupon. And okay, so, so my story is Terrible Trudy on the Lamb. It was a whim, a momentary desire to see what lay outside the zoo. But once Trudy had taken a walk around San Diego, once she'd tasted freedom, she was determined not to go back. She would make this work. At first, she lived in the city's lovely dark storm drains, emerging every night to forage for yummies in Balboa Park. But she knew her sylvan idol would not last forever. 
She needed a long-term plan, and after a week of pondering the matter, she put one together. A job was the first order of business, something that would keep her in shoots and leaves, and hopefully something she could do evenings. She was, of course, as the zookeepers had told her time and again, an odd-toed corpuscular ungulate. Twilight was her very best time of day, though she could go all night if she had to. She considered roller skating. Bears do it, elephants do it, even penguins roller skate. And at, at that time, roller skating couples in evening dress were becoming a popular nightclub entertainment. Why not tapers? At first, Trudy thought maybe a, pre, pre, a prey predator act would be exciting, since tapers have been known to bite viciously when cornered, and that could be milked for comic effect. But tigers, the Malayan tapers' principal predator, rarely roller skate well. They consider it they consider it undignified. And often when strapped into skates, just lie on their backs with their feet in the air as if expecting a belly rub. Trudy considered putting together an act with another prey animal, but she was wary of partners. Not every roller skater who said she was a vegetarian was committed to nonviolence. In the end, Trudy decided to go it alone. A kindly shoemaker created custom open-toed roller skates for her to show off her tiny hooved toes, three on each back foot, four on each foot in the front. The boots were made of red leather, which contrasted elegantly with Trudy's silver shoulders and black flanks. A black bow tie and a starched white collar pulled the whole ensemble together in a dignified and professional way. A refined Marlena Dietrich look, Trudy thought, right to the silver tracings on the tips of her ears. She practiced skating at night after the rink had closed and everyone had gone home. It was dark, but tapers had poor eyesight and she was accustomed to tiptoeing around in a dusky forest. Eventually, the groundskeeper discovered that she had broken into the rink through an unused storage closet and the jig was up. But by then, she had perfected a hilarious pantomime routine. She skittered out onto the dance floor, flailing about and threatening to clash, crash into tables along its edge. Then regaining her composure and performing a series of graceful loops and twirls, ending in an axle, loop, double mapes, Euler, double flip. Audiences loved it. In performance, the finale always drew gasps from the aisles, from the tables, and they took Trudy to their hearts, San Diegans, grieving and distressed after the attack on Pearl Harbor the, the previous year, sought consolation in bars and supper club, clubs, and Terrible Trudy, the roller skating taper, was a hit. Hollywood celebrities flocked to San Diego, ostensibly to perform for, in the, for the troops at the naval base, but really to catch Trudy's act at the Chi Chi Supper Club, a hot new nightclub with a South Seas theme. Trudy sometimes added a lay to her costume, it also served as a midnight snack. As Trudy's star rose, so did her worries about the zoo director, the indomitable Belle Benchley. Mrs. Benchley had pioneered the modern, natural-looking, cageless zoo. Trudy had rejected Benchley's carefully simulated enclosure, and Trudy's wanderlust had challenged the woman to the core. Mrs. Benchley knew Trudy was living in La Jolla and working openly at the Chi Chi Club, but had made no effort to contact her. How long would this detente last? <laughs> at first, Trudy seemed to be nonchalance itself. 
She flirted with members of the audience of any gender who caught her eye. If an object or an article of clothing attracted her interest, she would take possession of it, though she usually returned it to the owner at the end of her set. In such a fashion, she acquired a fedora, and she instantly made it a permanent part of her act. A huge fan of the singer Jimmy Durante, Trudy interspersed her spectacular skating routine with Durante imitations, just as Durante would pause in the middle of a song and break into a quick comedy routine, then return to the song as if nothing had happened. Turns out she was a very affecting singer with a sense of comedic timing that rivaled Durante's own. Not to mention, she had a schnozola that even Durante envied. <laughs> the crowds went wild. But the stress began to tell on Trudy, who knew that at any moment Mrs. Benchley could, on a whim, decide to bring Trudy back to the zoo in its fake Malayan rainforest. Trudy had no legal leg to stand on. As she had been reminded by her lawyers time and again, she was the property of the San Diego Zoo. Trudy began downing a quick tonga punch, or maybe two, before the show, just to keep her courage up. One evening, she went a bit further than two and had not sobered up by the showtime. She went on anyway, rather than disappoint the crowd, and revelers took her markedly sloppy routine as a clever commentary on the club MC, who was notorious for never showing up sober. People laughed and laughed, and their wild reception of her wacky skate dance encouraged her to act out even more. She was careening between the supper tables on one foot, waving the other three in the air, picking up customers' champagne glasses with her schnoz, and singing inka dinka doo, when suddenly her luck ran out, and her wheels caught on a crack in the floor. Had she been sober and standing on all four feet, she could have recovered, but that was not the case. Trudy went flying and landed on top of a table occupied by William Randolph Hearst <laughs> and his paramour, Marion Davies. Drenched in expensive champagne, Miss Davies fled the nightclub, leaving behind her ermine evening wrap and Mr. Hearst. As the newspapers told the story, Mr. Hearst immediately bestowed the ermine on Trudy to console her for her embarrassment. Miss Davies later vowed publicly never again to leave either her clothing or her man alone in Trudy's presence. <laughs> Declaring, that little rhinoceros minx has an elevated opinion of her own attractiveness. <laughs> Here we must acknowledge that although tapers and rhinoceroses are among the few odd-toed ungulates, tapers are not rhinoceroses, and neither of them are minks. <laughs> Trudy, realizing that her career as a headliner at the Chi-Chi Club had come to an end, saluted the audience with her fedora, ad-libbed Durante's signature closing, good night, Mrs. Calabash, wherever you are, and lit out for LA as fast as she could travel, just one step ahead of Mrs. Benchley. She was only a taper, making her lonely way in this dreadful world, but she knew when to call it a night. It took just a couple of hours to bus from San Diego to Los Angeles, and by midnight, Trudy, clutching her ermine stole about her, emerged from the Greyhound station on Los Angeles Street. She knew that pretty soon she'd need some kind of fake ID, but right then she sure, she sure hoped the cops wouldn't stop an innocent-looking young taper in a classy fur wrap. <laughs> the few passengers on the late-night bus from San Diego scattered like roaches when you turn on the light. It was a quiet night. Just a few people napped on the station's benches. No street traffic at all, really. Trudy was alone in L.A., 
and had no real idea of where to go. She was pretty sure that LA had storm drains and that the gardens of Beverly Hills would provide sustenance. She was also under the impression that Beverly Hills was somewhere north of the Greyhound station, which was true enough. She struck out at once. I haven't turned these pages on this particular book before. Heading towards Alvera Street, and what she had heard were some of the most colorful sections of the city. The wind was off the ocean, and she could smell the salt air. After just a few blocks, she left the dreary bus station shabby street and entered a neighborhood of trim little wooden bungalows. It smelled good. It smelled edible, in fact. Maybe she should have a nosh here, she thought. Why hold out for Beverly Hills? She reached out for some greenery and was nibbling it delicately when she noticed a man in the shadows crouched next to a 1937 Oldsmobile. The streetlights were dim and one to a block, but Trudy's eyesight was best in low light situations, so she had no problem picking him out. He was wearing a crumpled serge suit with an ugly striped tie that had slipped askew. His fedora was battered in a way that suggested he habitually sat on it. A pint of something alcoholic stuck out of his jacket pocket. He looked slightly dangerous and unmistakably up to no good. Trudy caught his eye. <laughs> he raised his eyebrows, nodded to Trudy, and, cool as a frozen daiquiri, brought his left index finger to his lips and gave her a stern, cautionary glance. She nodded slightly in return. She would give him a chance to explain himself, she thought. Then suddenly he leaped up, holding a huge flash camera in both hands and aimed it into the back seat of the Olds, photographing the car's interior. The flash lit up the scene and a high-pitched scream came from the car. The photographer broke away, ran like hell down the driveway right next to Trudy and disappeared into a huge privet hedge that Trudy had been considering for dessert. <laughs> the driver's side door of the Olds pushed open and a partly dressed guy jumped out clutching a wrench. He spotted Trudy and shouted, where'd he go? Trudy didn't care to be addressed so rudely. <laughs> she gestured towards Beverly Hills, and he started down the street a few yards, then stopped. He turned around and came back to the car, buttoning his yellow and pink Hawaiian shirt with a truculent look on his face. Get your things on, babe, he said to the person inside. I'll take you home, and then I'll deal with the gumshoe. A woman said something low and muley, but Trudy couldn't make out what it was. I'll pay him off, that's what. I'll take care of him. Don't worry about it. He leaped into the car, started it, threw it in gear, and they cluttered off down the street. Trudy made her move on the privet, which was as tasty as she thought it would be. <laughs> the blackmailer, for that's surely what he was, emerged from the hedge. They gone. He kept his voice low, and he mumbled. Trudy, her mouth full of fresh privet, simply nodded. I like a game can she keep her mouth shut, the man said. He held out his hand. Name's Mumble. Put it, Mumble. Trudy nodded again. That couldn't be his name, she knew, but it was really hard to understand him. No matter, she ignored his hand and continued to chew the privet. Divorce case, he said, tilting his head toward where the olds had been parked. He lowered his hand. That mug's been out with a different floozy every night. His old lady will take him for every penny he's got. Trudy just looked at him. Not a blackmailer, a P.I. You keep your own counsel, I can tell, said the man. <laughs> Trudy continued to keep her own counsel. 
You need a job, kid? You look hard up, wandering around the middle of the night eating people's shrubbery. <laughs> it was clear to Trudy that either he hadn't noticed the ermine stole, or he thought it was a part of a taper standard equipment. But the question and the man's concern softened her reserve. She nodded her head vigorously. I could use an assistant, someone who keeps their mouth shut, you know what I mean? Trudy shrugged, but didn't deny that she could keep her mouth shut. I'm a private dick, and I do mean private. He spoke a little louder, a little more clearly. But I could use a dame to handle surveillance, you over 18. <laughs> Trudy nodded again, though actually she was only five. <laughs> she seemed about right, though, just past adolescence. Well, come along, then. Jalopy's over here. I've got to get these pics developed. Lady's going to be filing for divorce. Needs her flagrante delicto. I don't want to be anybody's assistant, thought Trudy. I want to be the detective. I want to find the flagrante delictos. But I guess I'll deal with that later. She followed for a mumble to his car. And that was how Trudy happened to be in the front room of the detective's office later that night, filling out an application for a PI license when the irate adulterer came by with a shotgun. She saw his blurred form through the pebbled glass panel in the office door, and she recognized his pink and yellow shirt as the one on the guy who had driven off in the olds just a few hours before. Trudy was pretty sure that whatever her job turned out to be, some of it would involve running interference from people with whom the private eye had dealt in a professional capacity dropped by to dis discuss matters. So she put down her pencil and waited for the knock. The knock, it turned out, was the crash of the butt end of a shotgun coming through the pebbled glass. Trudy dashed forward, heedless of flying glass shards. The visitor aimed the shotgun directly into the PI's private office. Trudy reached over with her prehensile proboscis and pushed down hard on the barrel. The gun went off and sent a load of buckshot through the open office door and right into the front of the detective's desk. Trudy pressed her attack, making low-pitched, hollow brunts and emphasizing them with piercing whistles. She tilted her head back and waggled her long phallic snout, raising it like an elephant's trunk to reveal, deep behind her huge fleshy lips, a set of choppers as blunt and massive as those of a horse. She gave the man an emphatic bite on the arm, then reached over with her snout and grabbed the shotgun right out of his hands. The guy let it go. He seemed to have lost interest in it completely <laughs> and was staring at Trudy in complete disbelief. The detective appeared at the door to his office and his would-be assailant turned to him with a look of helpless appeal. That's a dog. It's the weirdest damn dog I've ever seen. <laughs> what the hell is it? My little sister. You got a problem? <laughs> The detective took the gun from Trudy and stashed it behind his desk. Your sister has got horse feet for toes and is wearing fur spats. It looks like two different animals pushed together, a white one in the front and a black one in the back. He seemed on the verge of hysteria. You know, Buster, you look like you were put together from spare parts yourself. I don't think you ought to be insulting my sister's protective coloration. May I inquire as to the purpose of your visit? Trudy was surprised and pleased to hear the gumshoe defender like that. She hadn't thought he, she had thought he wasn't any too thrilled to be told that she wanted to be a detective. In her experience, 
men did not take kindly to females of any persuasion who aspired to their jobs. Perhaps this one was different. Give me the negs, said the miscreant. You know what's good for you. Give them to me right now. You're not in a great position to make demands, buddy, said the detective. You want, the cops can make you a set of prints suitable for framing. The man leaped for the shotgun, but the quick-witted gunshoe gun kicked it away. Then the fellow pulled a knife. Unarmed and taken by surprise, the detective grabbed an office chair and raised it to keep his attacker at a distance. But it was clear to Trudy that he was not going to win a fight against a thug with a knife. She looked about for a weapon, or at least something she could grab and throw. Her eye fell upon her ermine stole. It was fluffy and soft and white, a garment that made her feel like the cutest little bunny in the world. But she knew that ermines were basically weasels in white coats. Vicious. The stole would distract the knife-wielding adulterer, perhaps tapping into an atavistic human fear of the weasel. <laughs> Trudy grabbed the stole with her snout and waved it as if teasing a bull to get the intruder's attention. He looked up and stared at her in a baffled panic. What was the beast doing now? Trudy flung the, the stole at the intruder, and it wrapped fuzzily around his head like a flying squirrel. The detective quickly picked up the shotgun and hit the knife out of the panicked miscreant's hand. Five minutes later, the fellow was neatly trussed and tied to the chair, and Trudy, wrapped again in the ermine, sat with her new boss on the wooden anteroom bench, awaiting the arrival of Detective Lieutenant Breeze. The detective poured them each a shot of Old Forester. You got it, kid, he said, tipping his glass toward her. You're cool-headed, aware of your surroundings, and deft at improvised distraction. I'll see that your PI certification is approved. He downed his glass and then poured another one. You got a job here with me as long as you want it, if you don't mind occasional gunplay. Trudy thought about it. She knew that there would come a day when she would flee the dark, cynical wor world of the L.A. gumshoe, just as she had fled the sleepy San Diego Zoo and the tacky writs of the Chi-Chi Club. It might well involve gunplay and hot pursuit, and that was okay with her. The thing you want when you're a prey animal, Trudy thought, is intermittent excitement. She could have a decent, happy life as the occasional target of someone's violent intentions because she loved the pure energy of being chased. She bore no malice towards those pursuing her, and her heart soared at every triumphant escape. She wondered if Mumble, whatever his name was, who, like most detectives, lived for the chase, would understand. Maybe she'd ask him sometime, but not now. Trudy nodded to Philip Mumble and took a sip of bourbon. She smiled a hidden, taper smile. Mrs. Benchley might yet track her down, but for the time being, she had escaped. And she had a job. Life was good. <laughs> now there's an author's note. <laughs> Terrible Trudy was a resident of the San Diego Zoo in the 1940s and 50s. Her escapes caught the popular imagination, but eventually zoo director Belle Benchley tracked her down and persuaded her to return and stay put. Trudy died of comfortable old age in 1959 in retirement at a rainforest habitat in the San Diego Zoo. Mrs. Benchley, influential in her advocacy of humane animal habitats for zoos, followed in 1972. Thank you.
when you buy her book, you can have your own copy and read it aloud or to yourself many times. <laughs> Thank you. We're going to take a break for about 10 minutes, uh, and then we'll be back with our second reader, Stephanie Heldon. As Ellen said, this is Fantastic Fiction at KGB. We're a monthly reading series. It's the second Wednesday of the month. We switch from the third. Uh, thank you all for those who have donated to our GoFundMe. Uh, Ellen mentioned that uh, we successfully funded three years. So thank you so much. Um, we, would love to, we would love to do four or even five if we can, right? I mean, you know. But I promise not to nag anyone. We, we promise not to nag anybody. But if, if we can, uh, we left the GoFundMe open. So if you want to uh, donate, we appreciate it. Uh, also, please buy drinks at the bar. Um, the KGB bar is always free. There's never a cover. All we ask is that you buy a drink hard or soft. Please support the bar by supporting the bar. You support the series and keep us going forever, hopefully. Um, before we get to our next reader, Stephanie, who's right there, a um, couple mentions real quick. Um, as we said earlier, Eileen Gunn has books for sale, so uh, come up and buy a book. And if you can't buy a book, at least take a PM Press coupon to get 25% off, and then you could uh, buy Eileen's book online. Uh, also, Stephanie, who uh, doesn't have books for sale, but she has book plates with her, so you can get a book plate signed. And for those who may not be familiar with what a book plate is, it's like a sticker that you put in the book. I think everybody here probably knows what that is, but just in case. Um, so yeah, please do that as well. Um, so we have, uh, I can't believe it's November already. Next month is our, is our last reading of, of 22, uh, 2022, uh, with Richard Cadry, who's right here, and Cassandra Kaw. So, uh, we're excited to have them read for us, so, uh, that'll be great. Um, next year, uh, January 11th, we have Christopher M. Savasco, uh, and, uh, some of you may know who he is. Um, used to edit a little uh, historical fiction magazine called Paradox, which was big back in the day, and another local auth author who hasn't confirmed yet, so I can't mention their name, but we're excited to have them. Uh, February 8th, uh, Marie Vibert and Jeffrey Ford will be reading for us. March 8th, Scott Lynch and Elizabeth Baer. Uh, April 12th, Peng Shepard, um, and our favorite guest, TV. Yes, thank you. <laughs> TVA. Um, June 14th, Nathan Ballingrid and May. Dale Bailey. May. Did we, who do we have for May? I thought it was we still have open. John Langan and Paul Tremblay. Oh, I didn't put that in my book, so there you go. Uh, if you didn't, just for the sake of the podcast, John Langan and Paul Tremblay in May. So, um, yeah, we're super uh, excited about tw uh, 2023 coming up. We hope you will join us for that. Um, if you can't make it in person, we have a podcast online at kgbfantasticfiction.org. Also, sign up for our mailing list where we just send out, um, you know, once or twice a month announcements about the reading. So, on to our next reader. Stephanie Feldman is the author of the novels Saturnalia and the award-winning debut The Angel of Losses. Her short stories and essays have appeared in Asimov Science Fiction Catapult Magazine, Electric Literature, Flash Fiction Online, The Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, and The Rumpus. Here's Stephanie Feldman. Thank you. Thank you to everyone for coming out. 
Um, and thank you to Matt and Ellen for inviting me here. Can everybody hear me okay? I'm so bad with microphones, and I think I always will be. Um, okay, I'm going to read to you from Saturnalia, which just came out a couple weeks ago. And it's a little different than Terrible Trudy's story. <laughs> a little uh, darker, maybe. <laughs> Um, I don't think I have to tell you too much for context, except that this book takes place in a world that is kind of like ours, um, but a little bit farther along in uh, climate collapse. And um, it also takes place in a world, in a Philadelphia specifically, that celebrates a wild winter solstice carnival um, that has gotten bigger and bigger as life has gotten harder and harder. And um, this carnival is organized by these elite social clubs. And my main character is a former member of the Saturn Club, um, but she left after a great betrayal. And now is coming back to do a favor for a friend. He asked her to get a package for him and didn't tell her what was in it. So you can imagine it's, you know, rough. Um, and she wouldn't go back, except she needs the money and he's promising her a cash reward. So here she is, Nina, on her way back to the Saturn Club. My coat is not thick enough for this winter night, but the crowd has a heat of its own. Everyone is drinking. The smell of roasting meat is in the air. The parade won't start for a few more hours, so the balance of noise still tilts towards shouts and laughter instead of drums and brass. Police in uniform and plain clothes patrol the six lanes of blacktop while the mob thickens around me. Every resistant body, every elbow in my side, every tug on my bag or coat, every cackle too close to my ear. They shudder through me until I can't tell where my body ends and the throng begins. It should feel liberating. The holiday is about abandon and freedom, rejecting the strictures that govern our daily lives and forsaking the judgment of others. If a man wakes up tomorrow on the street covered in vomit, he has done Saturnalia right. If he, if he has been arrested on minor charges, he has done Saturnalia right. If you get raped though, it's still your fault. I guess I wasn't supposed to be funny, but I'll take it. <laughs> the carnival mask covers only the bridge of my nose, but suddenly it's hard to breathe. I push it up on top of my head and suck in the frigid air, in and out, in and out, until it's easy again. No time for that now, though, for panic or for shame either. I'm on a mission for Max and for five more tiny red wax men and the money I'll harvest from their bellies. A couple months rent, and maybe the future I forfeited when I walked away. Theaters, luxury hotels, and Baroque department stores line Broad Street. I pass the Mithras Club, an animatronic cow skull puffing smoke on its roof, and the Ishtar Club, lit with blue spotlights and emitting choral music with a dance beat. Red carpets extend from the grand entrances like the blood of a sacrifice. The ancients thinned the herds before winter, creating a great supply of meat to consume, which demanded, um, which demanded great fires to cook with. Meat and fire as the winter sets in, a celebration to face the longest, darkest night, a promise that, though it may not feel like it, after tonight, everything gets better. Finally, I reach the Saturn Club. The building is a carved fang, narrow and snowy gray. A crimson runner unfurls down the stairs and between the curling banisters like a long tongue. The crowd releases guests in ones and twos to the hired security, who approve their tickets and allow them inside. The men in black coats, the women too, but with exposed calves and glittering heels. 
the wooden doors are flung open, baiting spectators. Exclusivity is a balance. It relies on mystery, but also the occasional glimpse. The club needs the audience that's gathered for their yearly peek inside. The arched entry frames the great Saturn statue, 10 feet tall, a curling beard, and exaggerated muscles, like a school of fish under his marble skin. Legs bent in a lunge, arms in the air, holding a gleaming white baby to his mouth. Saturn, in the myth, ate his children so he might rule eternally. I push my way to the back of the line, excitement finally overcoming my anxiety. Being judged worthy never stopped feeling good, especially with an audience watching. Three years since I've climbed these steps, risen above the throng, since I've straightened my back, let my hips sway, found that perfect pace, the one that's just quick enough to pretend you're not letting everyone get a good look at you. The line streams up the stairs and soon it's my turn. I adjust my black mask and open my patchwork shoulder bag, too shabby for this party, but the proper size, Max said. The guard sweeps aside my wallet, phone, lipstick, looking for weapons. He doesn't check the interior zippered pouch with a tiny brass key. Satisfied, the guard trains his flashlight on the front and then the back of my invitation. The peacock silhouette is as dark as a puncture in the world, and Max's engraved ring burns in a stray light. He hands the ticket back to me. Welcome, he says, to Saturnalia. So she goes inside um, into the great rotunda with all of the guests who are drinking and dressed to the nines and wearing their masks. And soon uh, the program begins and it's led by the Lord of Misrule, who's like the Saturn committee president and also happens to be her ex-boyfriend, whose name is East. Don't you hate when that happens? <laughs> May the longest night East, the Lord of Misrule cries, begin. For a moment, there's just the echo of his voice and then a cheer erupts. The greatest cheer, I think, I've ever heard. The audience loves this stupid show. They raise their fists and glasses in the air. They stamp their feet. They kiss each other. I remain still. Even though East can't see me at the back of the crowd under the stairs, I feel my being shrink against my bones like a child clinging to its mother. Across the rotunda, another person is still too. His mask isn't glamorous and embellished, but heavy and ugly, with deep set wrinkles, narrow eye slits, and an invisible mouth. The awful face is angled directly at me. It must be part of East's designs for the evening, maybe a player in the pageant later tonight. Pig, a young man cries. He grabs the shoulder of the man beside him, and his shirt-sleeved arm shields me from the monstrous mask's gaze. Pig, he cries again, and the chant takes off. Pig, pig, pig. It carries outside, continued by the people on the street, watching from under smoggy purple skies. They couldn't see their performance on the mezzanine, but they know what's next. The sacrifice is the only thing the club shares with the public before slamming the doors shut and sending them back to their lesser celebrations. The ancients sacrificed pigs at the temple of Saturn, but our sacrifices are polite. They happen at the corporate slaughterhouses, staffed by people who fled the heat and drought farther south. They package them at the butcher shop, only trickles of blood caught in the folds of shrink wrap. The ritual sacrifice became December's roast pork sandwiches and fried dumplings, the pork knuckle styrofoam plates at the Christmas markets, the pop-up 10 course menus in the elite dining rooms. 
My grandmother said, we believe in one God, not many. I said, Saturnalia is not about believing in anything. It's not religious at all. It's American, like Halloween or the 4th of July or Christmas. And the sacrifice is just a game. East holds a baby pig up. Its legs kick and its, and its snout opens. It's impossible, but I'm sure I can hear it squeal through the members' cheers. East has the piglet's throat in one hand, holding it still so he can stroke it theatrically between the ears. Its limbs scrabble on either, either side of his forearm, and the chanting continues. He likes it. He's drawing it out. He is actually a very good lord of misrule. East tosses the pig up gently, grabs it around the belly, holds it so its feet, already running, hover over the floor. Once he lets go, it will dash down the right staircase, or perhaps tumble down. Their legs are always too short for the steps. It might leap onto the floor or bounce, but either way, adrenaline tends to protect these creatures. It will right itself easily, flee in circles around the statue, and sooner or later it will run out the door, down another treacherous staircase and onto the street. Sometimes the piglets are found days later, wild in the alleys, and sometimes they're found dead, stepped on by accident, fed things they shouldn't eat, teased and chased until their hearts explode in their chests. East sweeps the pig up again, points it to the left staircase, and this side of the room roars. He straightens and throws back his head, laughing. The piglet struggles against his chest. Somehow, the crowd grows louder. They want the creature to run. They want to reach for it with their hands, wet with alcohol and sweat. Always someone tries to catch it, but rarely do they succeed. It's okay. There's no humiliation in being bested by the piglet. It's just a baby. A grown pig is too heavy and strong. A grown pig can hurt you. Now East holds the animal above his head, and the cheering is weighted with booing and hollering. The taunting has gone too far. Let him go, cries the man before me, hands cupped around his mouth. Let him go. A shadow seems to pass over East's face, his smile perhaps faltering, and then his balance falters, and he takes a little step backward. The piglet thrashes. East recovers, brings the pig down to chest level, but before he can place it on the ground, it slips out of his hands and over the railing. It bounces off the top of the Saturn statue. No, it doesn't quite bounce. It hits the god's head, crowning it in a dark spatter and slides down its back. The crowd is like a fire, quenched, a loud gasp and then silence. People crane their necks. A few put their faces on their partner's shoulders. One man uncovers his eyes and grimaces and covers them again. But the man with the crooked tooth before me, he has excitement in his eyes. I look away, but find that same exhilaration in the smile of a woman with a red feathered mask and two men elbowing each other and chuckling. The man with the monster mask remains inscrutable, but he's come closer, only a few yards away from me now. East is at the railing, leaning over to see what he's done. A spotlight's blaze turns his face to blue marble. Behind him, the other committee members glance at each other. One steps forward, straining to see. Amparo remains in place. She turns to East, and she must say something to him because he looks back at her. He winks. He did it on purpose. Uh, at this point, Nina is upset by this, as you might expect. <laughs> and she runs outside to um, gather herself again. 
and she decides she's going to stick with this mission, find that box, get that money. Um, and this is right when she decides to come back into the building. When I turn to the kitchen doorway, the costumed man from the rotunda faces me. He's tall with a wormy bone pale face. The mask is nearly a helmet covering his hair and up close it's hideous. Braided white cords torn into furry slits where the eyes blink, pink as disease. The mouth is lipless, an overly long gash beneath a flat nose. I take a step back. Are you in the pageant? I ask, but he says nothing. The costume is too meticulously weird for anything else and his jerky movements are practiced. The pageant is supposed to be a discreet performance, but maybe East's plans are more elaborate. Maybe it started already. The mask doesn't move, but I hear a hiss, like breath or the beginning of a whisper. I feel myself leaning forward, a tie to his moon, or perhaps I'm dizzy from the proportions of his costume, sleeve cuffs brushing mid-thigh, wide trouser legs, the same pilly gray as the coat, pooling over invisible shoes. He steps forward. His hiss grows into a wheeze. A chill of revulsion runs through me, like when a roach crawls out of the sink drain while I'm brushing my teeth, like when a mouse scratches inside the wall beside my bed. The breeze picks up, and the man presses down a flapping lapel. His arms are gloved in the same knotty white material, and his fingers are far too long. They must be prosthetics, but they're so detailed. They quiver like antenna in the wind, multiple knuckles on each finger flexing. The fingernails are as thick as tree bark. He steps forward again, not really a step, more like a jolt, a heaving of weight. Get away from me, I say. He takes another jerky step and I shout, don't touch me. He wheezes through the mask. He's trying to scare me and it's working. A familiar, nauseating mix of shame and anger grows inside of me. He's big but unsteady in that costume. If I hit him high in his chest, he'll stumble. But then he heaves toward me again and my panic returns. I scramble down the concrete steps and pound against the fire door, firm in the frame and with no handle. Let me in, I cry, then glance behind me. The man is completely still, watching. I bang the door again and again, and finally it opens. I push past the janitor. Whoa. He drops a full trash bag and puts his hands up like I might try to fight him. Close the door. I step across a dotted trail of pig's blood. The janitor leans into the night, searching for whatever frightened me. Close the door, I yell, my voice breaking. He looks at me curiously. It's just a man in a mask up there, one of the guests, probably hoping for this very reaction, enjoying my fear. The janitor takes the bag outside and the door claps shut. No, I yell, but I don't go after him. It's as if my shoes are stuck in the smear of blood. How could such a small animal have contained so much blood? There's a thump outside and then a scratching sound, like a tree limb against a roof, those brown fingernails, rough and square. The Saturnalia carolers are singing in my mind. Here we stand before your door, as we stood the year before. A dark trickle runs under the door, another slow scratch and my hair stands on end, as if those fingernails were running down my skin. Give us whiskey, give us gin, open the door and let us in. Thank you. <laughs>
you very much. So uh, we have book plates that Stephanie can sign. We have books that Eileen can sell you for a low, low price of something. And <laughs> please buy a drink at the bar, and we hope you will uh, be back next month for, uh, for our reading. So thank you so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, see you next time. listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB reading series. Check out our website at kgbfantasticfiction.org and click on support if you'd like to help keep the series going. Anyway, that's our show. Thanks for listening and see you next month.